For over two decades now, evangelist Ray Comfort from New Zealand has had a, and developed a method of evangelism based on the Ten Commandments. All right, Some of you are familiar with this, others this is new to you, but here's how he does it. Uh, we increasingly live in a culture where people don't believe that they are guilty uh, before God for much of anything. Um, and so Ray Covert has this deal where he'll talk to people and he'll work, walk through the Ten Commandments with them. And he'll get to example, say, so, you know, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And he'll say, so have you ever murdered anybody? Now, that can be an awkward conversation starter. Uh, on the off chance you hit somebody that has murdered somebody. But for most people, they'll say, of course, no, I've never murdered anybody. What are you crazy? And then, of course, Ray will utilize the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he'll say, but did you know that Jesus said, if you've ever hated anybody, that you've murdered them? Have you ever hated anybody? Well, then, of course, the conversation takes a turn, doesn't it? And Ray walks them through a couple of those examples, and he'll just essentially help to show the person that he's talking to that we are not, that we are not holy, that we have broken God's law, right? And so he'll utilize the law of God to, to show that to folks. Of course, uh, agreeing that we deserve judgment, that in and of itself, though, isn't the whole story. It's not enough to just prove to people that they're guilty before God. Even as we've been singing and talking today, there's a recognition, yes, we left on our own. We don't stand righteous before God. We need help. But the rest of the story, of course, that's the method that Ray uses. The rest of the story is, of course, what has God done to help those who are guilty of violating his law? And then he goes into the gospel, right, to explain the good news. We have to have the rest of the story. And in some senses, in the book of First and Second Kings, you have this trajectory of Israel waiting for this promised rescuer, a Messiah. There is no doubt when you read First and Second Kings that Israel is guilty of breaking God's law. And in fact, as we read First and Second Kings, we, I think, have been shown ways that we also break God's law. And yet there's this kind of tone of anticipation all throughout the book, constantly making reference back to previous kings. And we'll see it even develop this morning. There's this, this question of, wait a minute, isn't there supposed to be a descendant of David coming who's going to solve these problems once and for all? And so we've hit on it many weeks in our series through First and Second Kings, but the fact is we need to compare and contrast these kings, and especially the ways that they succeeded and failed, and look to then how that foreshadows what the true King Jesus would do for us and has done for us. We have the benefit of being able to make that comparison from this place in history. And so this morning, as we come to 2 Kings 14, maybe you're here and you're feeling guilty. Like if you caught Ray Comfort on the street, you'd be like, hey man, I can cut to the chase. I, I, am, I am guilty. I, I, don't, I don't stand righteous. In fact, maybe that guilt and that Shame over sin has got you in a place of discouragement and despair. We're going to see this morning that there is incredible encouragement for us and what's intended to be lasting encouragement for us in the provision of the true king. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not feeling that guilty. You're feeling like you've got it figured out. Maybe you'd never say it quite that boldly, but the fact is this passage is also for, for those of us who are feeling kind of confident as a reminder that, frankly, without the true king, we're toast. And God loves us and cares for us, and he's given us this chapter to help us just see a little bit more clearly just how great our true King Jesus really is. So let's get into the details, starting in chapter 14, verse 1, and we're just continuing on from last week. But there we read in the, in the Word of God, 2 Kings 14, 1, In the second year of Israel's king Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, Amaziah, son of Joash, became king of Judah. 
I'm un- it's unfortunate this morning, we're not going to get much relief from the J names. So you're just going to have to do your best, okay? And I'll try to keep it clear, but keep, keep working here. Now we're talking about the king of the southern kingdom, and it's now Amaziah, okay, son of Joash. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan. She was from Jerusalem. Verse 3, he did what was right in the Lord's sight. All right, but not like his ancestor David. He did everything his father Joash had done. If we pause there, Joash did some good things, but you'll remember that Joash didn't go the distance. He left high places you know, still functioning, which were uh, un- unauthori- un- unauthorized places of false worship. And so they were Canaanite places of worship. And so he had left that happen, and his son Amaziah did the same. The good news is he did what was right in the Lord's sight, at least to a point. But then we get this interesting qualifier in verse 3, but not like his ancestor David. As soon as we read about his ancestor David, we immediately need to get back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made those promises that there would be a descendant of David who would reign forever. And so we're still waiting for that, that son of David who will be that ideal king. And Amaziah is not that king. Again, he did what was right, but not going the distance. Watch verse 4. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. Yeah, it's, it's like Joash. It's just he didn't, he didn't get there. But he did do some things right. Watch verse 5. As soon as the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, Amaziah killed his servants who had killed his father, the king. However, he did not put the children of the killers to death, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers are not to be put to death because of children, and children are not to be put to death because of fathers. Instead, each one will be put to death for his own sin. Okay, let's just pause here. How is that a good thing? Well, you'll remember, we've read of it several times now in Kings, that uh, the ancient Near Eastern code, as far as being change of regime, right, is that um, when there was a change of regime or assassination attempts, things like that, um, you wipe out not just the individuals responsible, but their whole family line, okay? And the theory there is that you eliminate any possible retribution in the future by doing that. Well, Amaziah's father, Joash, he was assassinated, right? We we caught that at the end of chapter 13, or at the end of chapter 12. Um, We covered that last week. But so he was assassinated, and so Amaziah becomes king. And once he was strong enough, he puts to death the individuals who had assassinated his father, which was right and good. That was justice. But then, other ancient Eastern contexts, he would have just kept going and killed all their family members. But, and the author of 2 Kings wants to make clear in verse 6, Amaziah followed the law of God here. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 is what he quotes. But basically saying, you know, children are not to be put to death for the sins of their fathers. And so Amaziah had restraint, and he did not kill those children of those assassins. And that was not only his mercy on display, but it was also displaying his fulfilling of the law of God. Now, if we just pause right here, and if we remember that these kings help us look forward to Jesus, the true king, or see something very important about the positive in Amaziah, specifically here, that he fulfilled the law. The true king, Jesus, fulfills the law. Amaziah does it here just this one instance But as we look forward to Christ, Jesus is the perfect lawkeeper in that sense. He fulfills the law for us in every detail, the law of God, which is essential if he's going to be the leader of humanity. If if humanity will belong to him and follow his lead, he must be the perfect lawkeeper. And so, you know, you you have this recognition um, 
in Matthew 5, for example, verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill the law. And what Amaziah does in one instance, Jesus does in every instance. The true king is the one who keeps the law. But when he keeps the law, he actually does it for us. And so we read, for example, in Romans 10 and verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for us. What does that mean? It means he has satisfied the law's demands. And by faith in him, God views us as being law keepers as Jesus kept the law. And so Amaziah here is just a little hint, just a little sneak preview. In that instance of obeying the law, he's a sneak preview of what Jesus has done for us by keeping the law. Now listen, God's law is good, right? It it is a good and blessed gift. Well, how does that work? Well, first of all, God's law shows us our need for forgiveness. It exposes where we don't love him the way we should, and we don't love others the way we should. It also, by the way, reveals his glory. When we look at the law of God, we can see God's character on display, and that glorifies him. But what the law was never meant to do, it was never meant to be a system wherein sinners were forgiven by keeping it. Right? That's not how it worked, because we can't keep it. It, it wasn't designed for that, and, and that's not the point of it. But what Christ has done on our behalf is he has actually fulfilled the demands of the law. It shows where we fail. Jesus paid for our failures by dying on the cross for our sins. He also supplies for us righteousness. Why? Because he kept the law in ways that we haven't. So guess what? It's okay in this context to acknowledge when we fail. Because when we break the law of God... Jesus stands to argue for us. That's why we observe the Lord's table this week. That's why we sing these songs together, because we need to remind one another that when we fail, we have protection in Christ. The law was never meant to be our means of salvation. And there's always a temptation when we start thinking about this to to lean in that direction, where it's like, hey, listen, if you gave me a list of seven things to do, or 692 things to do, or whatever, that maybe I could just, maybe I could just do it and kind of handle it myself. But that's not what the law is supposed to do. The law shows us that we need a Savior, and then Jesus fulfills the law, thus providing that forgiveness for us. The King who fulfills the law actually frees us from it, which is a huge blessing in that sense, as we seek to be accepted by God in spite of our failures. Okay, so Amaziah does well in fulfilling the law, but then he kind of it kind of goes off the rails a little bit here in verse 7. Let's continue on and read about Amaziah, the next thing that happened. First of all, Amaziah killed 10,000 Edomites in Salt Valley. He took Selah in battle and called it Jokdeel, which is still its name today. That's as of the writing of Second Kings. That victory is probably a good thing, okay? Unfortunately, it went to Amaziah's head big time. Watch verse 8. Amaziah then sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, and challenged him, come, let's meet face to face and fight. It's implied, but it's there, okay? So this is what happens. Amaziah has been victorious against the Edomites, and then he looks to the northern kingdom, which used to be part of the nation, right? They were united, and so now it's divided. It's been that way for many generations at this point, and he says, you know what? I think I can take back the northern kingdom. And so he gets a little sassy, okay? And he, and he sends a, basically an ancient Near Eastern trash talk message to the king of Israel, to Joash. And he says, bring it. Let's go. Meet me outside, out, right, out in the park after school, and we're going to get this done. I mean, that's basically what this, what's going on right here. 
And watch Jehoash's response in verse 9. This is very interesting. King Jehoash of Israel sent word to King Amaziah of Judah, saying, The thistle in Lebanon once sent a message to the cedar in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as a wife. Then a wild animal in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. (laughs) Self-explanatory, right? What is this little parable? What's What's he doing? Jehoash is saying, Watch it, buster. Or maybe more accurately, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Okay, that's what this says. Because in the parable, the kingdom of Israel is the cedar of Lebanon, the majestic tree that is virtually immovable, right? And Judah is this little thistle, this dried out bush. And the, and the little bush is like, hey, give me your daughter. You know, like that. And then he can't even get the question done because a wild goat just ran by and trampled it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the parable. Listen, you don't, Amaziah, you don't want a piece of this. And in fact, we get the translation in verse 10 just so that we don't miss the point. You have indeed, this is still part of the message, you have indeed defeated Edom and you have become overconfident. Enjoy your glory and stay home, little guy. Why should you stir up such trouble that you fall, you and Judah with you? Joash says, come on, man. Like, you don't want to go there. You're starting a fight you can't win. And he exposes what really in Amaziah's heart is pride and arrogance. He won one battle and now he thinks he's the big dog. Verse 11, but Amaziah would not listen. So King Jehoash of Israel advanced. He and King Amaziah of Judah met face to face at Beit Shemesh that belonged to Judah. They fought in Judah's backyard. Judah was routed before Israel and each man fled to his own tent. King Jehoash of Israel captured Judah's King Amaziah, son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beit Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down 200 yards of Jerusalem's wall from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. He took all the gold and silver, all the articles found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace and some hostages. Then he returned to Samaria. It turns out he was right. He was the cedar. And so Amaziah's pride has resulted in the fall of Judah, at least a temporary fall in Judah. They, they were defeated militarily. The wall, part of the wall of the city of Jerusalem was torn down, which exposed them to attack. Uh, the, the temple was plundered, so the money in the temple and all the articles of the, the temple, they're all taken. And Jehoash even takes some hostages, and he goes back to Samaria. Here's the reality. The pride of Amaziah led to, in this moment in Judah's history, a downfall. And all of this is bad news. I mean, the temple being plundered, the wall being torn down. I mean, this is like, what? And how did they get there? They got there because one guy, the king, he thought he had it all figured out. He thought he was strong enough. He thought, nobody can mess with me. That's pride. And in Amaziah, it led to really disaster for his reign and for the kingdom under his leadership. When we compare and contrast that with the true king, what do we see? We see the true king, Jesus, leads not with pride, but he leads us in humility. You you look to Jesus, and you read the Gospels, and although Jesus had the full right to bring down the heavy hand of justice, which he could have easily done, and in Jesus' case, it wouldn't have been pride, it just would have been right, because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He was the, the, the perfect God-man, 100% God, 100% man, right? He could have easily brought the hammer, but instead, what does Jesus do? He says, 
The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And we see Jesus saying, blessed are those who are meek. Right? We see Jesus modeling this attitude of humility by not just taking time to invest in people, but washing these disciples' stinky feet the very night he would be betrayed. You see, the true king, he leads in humility. As we wrestle with this reality of pride and the temptation to pride, there are a couple helpful warnings here for us. Of course, the first is that pride is exposed here for what it is. It's ridiculous. That's the point of the little taunt, to show how ridiculous it is for the, the little thornbush to say to the cedar, you know, bring it. I mean, that, it doesn't make any sense. But pride distorts our view of reality. Pride causes us to misdiagnose, right, who we are, and we compare ourselves to others. Pride is, is anchored in self-focus, right? Amaziah couldn't listen to reason because he was so focused on what they had done. I won the victory. I am so great. I can certainly beat them, right? And he had a lust for what? He had a lust for power, for maybe money and resources, lust for achievement, lust for recognition. And so it was all about him, 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 right? He's pushing, pushing, pushing. Of course, in, in our lives... Pride is the same way. In self-focus, we can be chasing after money and recognition and power and success. That's what we want. It also leads to arrogance. You know, sometimes arrogance in our lives is loud, right? The, you know, rah, 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 like that kind of thing where you're, you're kind of, you know, tooting your own horn and you talk a big game. That's maybe what Amaziah certainly struggled with. But sometimes arrogance isn't loud. Sometimes it's quiet. It's the silent critic who always knows better than everybody else, who can never receive input or correction, who is the silent judger, right? Sometimes that's where pride leads to that kind of arrogance. You know what the true king did? The true king died for our pride because it's offensive to God, because it's sinful and it's wrong. And Jesus says, I am going to serve by laying down my life for your pride for my pride. I mean, I think probably in many ways, pride is one of those sins that has become fairly acceptable because it's not sometimes obvious and it certainly doesn't seem to be that scandalous in comparison to other sins of our age. And so, you know, we think, ah, pride, it's no big deal. Everybody struggles with it. Everybody does struggle with it and Jesus died for it. So what we need to maybe do in hearing 2 Kings 14 is to acknowledge this, it's not okay for me to have this kind of pride or even that silent pride where I'm constantly just, I'm the one that knows it all, right? There's this warning here. You know where pride's going to lead you? It's going to lead you to destruction. That's where it led Judah under Amaziah. You know, pride says, I am able, I know the answers, but humility says, I am not able and in our circumstances, from our perspective, looking to Christ, we're saying, I need help. I must receive the grace of God. You could think of James 4, verse 6. James quoting from Proverbs here, but he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus, the true king, he leads us in that humility. Maybe this morning there's an opportunity for you to consider how pride might be infecting your thinking. Where, where, where is it hitting you? Right? Where has it soured you? Where has it inflated your sense of your own judgment or ability? And there's an opportunity to follow the true king. How do we do that? Two steps. Repent of our pride 
right? We, we acknowledge it. Lord, this is where I've been struggling with pride. Forgive me for that pride. I turn away from that pride. And what? And follow Jesus in faith, which means what? Living in humility. Where instead of it being all about me, I make it all about God and therefore all about others. And I say, I am not here to be served. I am here to follow my master, which means to serve. The true king leads us in humility because unchecked pride results in disaster. And that's exactly what happens. Watch verse 15. There's kind of a, uh, an explanation of both Jehoash and Amaziah's death, but we already know Jehoash died from the last chapter. So what's up? Well, let's watch how he describes it. Verse 15, the rest of the events of Jehoash's reign, along with his accomplishments, his might, how he waged war against King Amaziah of Judah are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Jehoash rested with his ancestors and he was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. His son Jeroboam became king in his place. What you need to note about that is that sounds like a, a normal, successful king dying and being buried with his ancestors, which that's how it was. Jehoash tried to talk Amaziah out of fighting him. It didn't work, so Jehoash went ahead and fought, and, and he took the plunder, which was basically the southern kingdom, at least temporarily. But watch what happens with Amaziah's death in the next section, verse 17. Judah's king Amaziah, son of Joash, lived 15 years after the death of Israel's king Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz. The rest of the events of Amaziah's reign are written in the historical record of Judah's kings, but watch. A conspiracy was formed against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. However, men were sent after him to Lachish, and they put him to death there. They carried him back on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. Then all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. After Amaziah, the king rested with his ancestors. Azariah rebuilt a lot and restored it to Judah. If you just pause there, we already had known Jehoash had died, and we already had that record in the previous chapter. Why is it repeated? Because the author wants us to put the death and circumstances uh, around Jehoash's burial and compare them to Amaziah's. Here's the king who pursued peace. He died in peace and was buried with his, with his family. Here's Amaziah, the proud king, who although generally did what was right in the Lord's sight, he did not finish that job. He left the high places. He certainly had that, that proud uh, defiance of reality and, and attack the northern kingdom, which he should not have done. And that man who actually refused to listen to reason and pursued war instead of peace, he actually dies by the sword. He's chased out of Jerusalem. He hides in a, in a town close by in Judah called Lachish. They find him there. They execute him there. So he was assassinated. And then they had to drag his body back up the hill to Jerusalem in order to bury him. So the contrast is clear. If you're going to choose this life, this life of pride and self-focus and conflict, right, that results from that, then you're going to live a life of conflict, and you're going to die in conflict. I mean, that's the picture here. There's a warning and a caution. The king of peace dies in peace, but the king of war dies by the sword. Well, how does that help us looking forward to the greater son of David? Well, here's the reality. Jesus, as a king, died in violence. Except his death wasn't because he was combative, and, and chasing his own agenda in the sense of trying to assert his power over others, his death was the means of making peace. The true king died to make peace. His humble death does what? It frees us then from a life of pride and therefore a life of conflict. Jesus' death and resurrection enables us to now live a life of humility and to pursue peace genuinely. 
think about it. Jesus' death makes peace for us in two arenas. We often talk about this, but it's, it's worth a reminder. Jesus' death makes peace with us, with God, right? Because we stand in conflict with God because of our sin, and yet Jesus says, I died for their failure. I've conquered sin and death by my resurrection. If they put their faith in me, they are now in right relationship to God. That's what Jesus does for us. He brings us into a state of peace and reconciliation with God. We are now in the family. That's what his death accomplishes. It's not the result of of some kind of, you know, selfish agenda. No, it's the result of his humility and his love. His death makes peace. But it doesn't just make peace for us with God. His death then enables us to live at peace with others. So Amaziah is like, how not to do that, okay? Jehoash, in this case, actually kind of is a good example. He at least tried to avoid the fight. But what, what's, the, what do we, what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is because Jesus has made us right with God, we now can live a life of humility and we don't have to scrap and fight to exalt and, and to um, you know, advance our own agenda all the time. We can kind of let that go. Instead, we can live for God's glory and we can truly live at peace with others, not necessarily because we trust them, but because we trust God. And so we don't, we don't have to always be the top. We don't have to always fight for my rights. In fact, what Jesus models for us, the true king is laying down those rights. That doesn't mean we don't pursue what is right and good. It doesn't mean we're just a doormat, but it does mean this. It means our attitude is not one of self-advancement. Our attitude is one of humility and service to others. Whereas the apostle Paul tells us in Romans, we purpose to live at peace with everyone. That I don't, I don't want to I don't want to stoke, conf- I don't want to start conflict, and I don't want to stoke the fire of conflict. I want to be someone who genuinely makes peace, because that's what my king does. My king died to make peace. You can think of the warning of Jesus to Peter in the garden when he's ready to take matters into his own hands and draw the sword, and finally, let's go to war, and let's, let's attack these, these soldiers. And Jesus says, no. Don't you know all who take up the sword will die by it? This is not what I'm calling you to, Jesus says to Peter. I'm not calling you to a life of self-centered advancement through conflict. I'm calling you to something way different than that. That's the true king, the king we need. And Amaziah's tragic death just shows us where pride and self-centeredness will ultimately lead us. It leads to that kind of disintegration of peace in our lives. So again, how do we respond? Well, we respond with repentance over that kind of living, that, that conflict-loving living, right, where we, we're trying to advance our cause by that, and it leads us to live by faith, which means I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to follow Christ's example. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to be the one that tries to make peace instead of, again, pursue my own agenda. So Amaziah, in his you know, tragic death, just shows his whole reign ends up being a kind of a disaster for Judah. And by the time he dies, Judah is at risk. I mean, there's, the walls have been you know, torn down. That's not, those aren't easy to rebuild, by the way. It takes a lot of uh, financial uh, leverage and tons of manpower to get that done. And so without the wall, they have no protection, and they're just kind of exposed. They have, they have no hope of blessing or security. Or do they? The chapter takes a really interesting turn in verse 23. Watch what happens next. It comes to us by virtue of the northern kingdom, but it affects the southern kingdom as well. Watch this. In the 15th year of Judah's king Amaziah, son of Joash, 
Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Okay, I'm going to help you out here with the Jeroboams. Work with me. This is Jeroboam II, okay? They should just call it that in the translation. It would be easier. But this is Jeroboam II, okay? There was a Jeroboam I. Watch verse 24, okay? He, that's Jeroboam II, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. So Jeroboam II, turns out, is just like Jeroboam I. So you're okay if you mix them up, okay? The first Jeroboam starts the problem by introducing idolatry, split kingdom, all of that. That's what he did. And now Jeroboam II, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He's advancing the cause of idolatry. He is not a good king. Amaziah had done what was right. Here, Jeroboam, the northern kingdom, he does not do what was right. But then watch verse 25. It doesn't make any sense. He restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word the Lord, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath Hefer. Okay, pause right there. Yes, that is the Jonah from the book of Jonah. This is a moment where Jonah was ministering to the, the king Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom. And despite the fact that Jeroboam II did what was evil in the Lord's sight, he had an extremely long reign, 41 years, the longest reign of any king of the northern kingdom, and by far the most stable reign, and he actually expanded the borders of Israel. I want to show you that. Let's, let's go to the map, and I'll just show you how this works. So uh, Libo Hamath, this is up in Lebanon. So the, the line was way up here in the north, which is where it, it should be. And then the Sea of Arba, you can't even see it. It's all the way down below the area of the, of the Moabites, including, by the way, Judah. So Amaziah's failures had actually ended up with Judah essentially for a while being like a vassal state to the northern kingdom. And the walls torn down, what hope do they have? Well, it turns out Jeroboam II, a wicked king, takes the king, uh, excuse me, takes the throne. And then what does he do? God blesses him and causes him to basically secure the whole land for 41 years. Why? Well, he tells us so that we can understand clearly what's going on here. Watch verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people. There was no one to help Israel. The Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Why? Because of his covenant love. Because of his mercy. Because God is gracious. Did you catch the mix-up here? Amaziah does what is right mostly, but his reign ends in disaster. Jeroboam definitely does, Jeroboam II does what is evil, and yet the Lord blesses Israel and turns out Judah in the middle of it. And he provides protection and provision. Why? Because it's not about the performance of these individuals. It's not about their track record. It's not about their character that is the basis of God's blessing. There's a point here in 2 Kings 14, similar to chapter 13, and that is this. It's that the sovereign king, he gives grace to whomever he chooses. He dispenses grace freely, and he loves to do it because it shows his care. Notice, notice the language here, how much care and concern is there. The Lord saw in verse 26, the affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people, upper class and lower class, right? For the wealthy and the poor. The Lord saw that it wasn't good for all of them under those circumstances that they, that they were facing, probably in light of Assyria's growing dominance is the historical background there. But at the end of verse 26, he says, there was no one to help Israel. 
The Lord saw them with compassion in spite of their wickedness and idolatry. And the truth is, in verse 27, he reminds us, he said, the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel. So he promised not to let them be destroyed. He promised, he covenanted with them that he would keep them in existence and actually bless them and use them to be a blessing for others. So it's that stubborn love of God that causes him to bless Israel and Judah under Jeroboam II's reign. And he even uses Jeroboam to do this, probably without Jeroboam's knowledge. Like, Jeroboam didn't understand what was happening, but God used him to be the agent of blessing to give Israel peace in the land for a time. We have more archaeological evidence of Jeroboam II's reign, Jeroboam II's reign than any other king of Israel. I mean, he only gets a few verses in 2 Kings because he did what was evil. And the only verses that are mentioned don't reference his long reign and his illustrious, all the stuff he did, the building projects, all the stuff. It just says, you know what? God blessed Israel in spite of this guy. Why? Because he loves them. Did you know that that is exactly how the love of God works for you? God does not bless you because of a track record of obedience. God does not provide for us because we manifest over time that we've figured it out and kind of helped ourselves and corrected some faults. God does not forgive people who deserve to be forgiven. There are no people who deserve to be forgiven. This is just this constant reminder in the scriptures, and we have it again here in 2 Kings 14, that God says, I forgive, I provide, I bless because I want to. We're the recipients of God's grace not because we deserve it, but because it shows his glory for him to give it to us. He is loving, he is gracious, and he's worthy of worship and devotion because of it. If we ever start to think that our blessing, the gifts that God has given us, is tied to our performance, we have misread the scriptures. And we've misunderstood who God is and who we are. You see, the true king saves How? By his sovereign grace. The true king saves by his sovereign grace. And his sovereign grace is the only road to blessing. You got this classic moment uh, in Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses, he really, he wants to see God's glory. And God says, it'll kill you if I show you my glory because he's a sinner. But then he says, okay, I'll make provision and I'll put you, hide you in the cliff and I'll, I'll, I'll cause myself to pass by and I'll say my name even as I pass by. And in chapter 33, as he kind of builds up to that, he explains as a part of his character is that I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I'm a merciful God, he says. And guess what, Moses? I'm in the business of showing people mercy just because I can. So that's why we call it his sovereign grace. Because his grace is not earned or warranted, God is sovereign over who he gives it to. And God says, I want to show it to you. I am inclined to be gracious and forgiving. That's that's what I do. And so don't misunderstand my grace and think that somehow you earn it or warrant it. That's not how it works. We don't deserve it, but God gives it. It's his divine prerogative to show grace to sinners. And guess what? As sinners, we should praise him for it. Because without it, we would have no hope. So this sovereign grace, it addresses a lot of our struggles. We've talked about pride this morning a lot. It addresses our pride because it says, point blank, you can't earn it. So it humbles us in that sense. But it also addresses doubt, where we doubt, does God really love me? And God is saying emphatically, I love you. 
so much that I have covenanted, I have committed to provide for you in Jesus, in the gospel. So we can, be, we can actually answer our doubts about whether or not God loves us because of his stubborn commitment to be merciful and to be gracious. There's no explanation for the success of Jeroboam's reign other than the grace of God. In fact, if you read on, just get catching the end of the, the, the chapter, the last two verses, the rest of the events of Jeroboam's reign, along with all of his accomplishments, the power he had to wage war, how he recovered for Israel, Damascus, and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, those are all written in the historical record of Israel kings, but those aren't as important, right? Jeroboam rested with his ancestors, the kings of Israel. His son Zechariah became king in his place. The point here is he, he was strong and he was, he was powerful, but what you need to remember about Jeroboam is that even though he was wicked, God blessed Israel through him and Judah. It addresses our arrogance, the sovereign grace of God. Because once again, should we, should we assert this, world, this worldview or this viewpoint that, that we are the ones that have done it or can do it? Right? It's clarified and corrected in that. And it helps us with fear of judgment or shame over our sin. Because we're reminded that we don't have to fear judgment because of his sovereign grace. Because his grace isn't dependent on our performance. And we don't have to live in shame and guilt because the solution has been provided for us. When you think about the borders of the land, you need to think about that in terms of blessing. Because the theory is, when they have the land, God has provided blessing for them. And what's the basis of that blessing? Again, it's his sovereign grace. So, there is now, as we've said already today, there's this opportunity or this, uh, this chance to say freely, I, have, I don't deserve this grace. I have sinned. And I can acknowledge my sin in the sight of God. Not as a means, again, of earning grace, but because God is, is committed to showing his love to us and forgiving us. I wonder, when was the last time you went to the Lord in prayer and confessed sin? Where you, you were... You were broken over it, and you said, Lord, I have sinned. I said this. I, I did this to this person. Lord, I wanted to do that to that person. And you, you did so. You confessed your sin with the full knowledge that God loves you in spite of how we fail. That's why the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we get into a bad habit of just thinking that the grace of God means we don't ever have to acknowledge our sin. But that's not how it works. God's actually designed for our spiritual health, for us to acknowledge our sin regularly and to be comforted regularly. Not because of our church attendance pattern, not because of our giving record, not because of missions trips and all that. No, because of His sovereign grace. Can I just encourage you this morning? You can't lose it. You can't remove it. You can't unearn it because you never earned it in the first place. The true king saves by his sovereign grace. So the takeaway is the true king is the one we need. We get to the end of the chapter, and it's just that broad message again throughout all of First and Second Kings. We don't need King Amaziah, and we certainly don't need King Jeroboam. We need the true king. And Jesus fulfills that promise in 2 Samuel 7. He is the king who is rightly the king over all kings. And he's the king that, that we need and the only king who can actually be the agent of true, real blessing. 
You know, in, later in the Bible, the image of the border is being expanded. That image is used for how God will bless us for eternity. That, that he will actually bless us on the new earth. And it's like we inherit the land. We'll receive the blessing. Think about that for a second, for some of the things that we chase after and we want. So, you know, sometimes we want the year-end bonus, right? We're looking forward to that year-end bonus. But in Christ, the true king, guess what? You don't get a year-end bonus. You get an eternal bonus. Provision forever. You don't need another stimulus check. <laughs> I mean, that's it. He's provided. Sometimes we get so caught up in the chase of that other stuff, though. We forget what the true king has done for us, what he's given to us. Real blessing. It's not more likes on social media. You know what you have in Christ? You have unconditional acceptance, and you've been welcomed into God's family. That's better, and it lasts forever. Real blessing is not short-term healing. And man, I know, we, you know we've faced a lot of sickness, and we continue to, to face sickness because of the brokenness of this world. And some, sometimes we just want to feel better. But did you know, did you know that in Christ, we will receive permanent restoration in our resurrection bodies? That's the healing we're after. That's, those are the knees that don't ever have to be replaced, okay? That's what we're looking forward to. And yes, it hurts. There's pain. But that is temporary. In Christ, we have that, that blessing. Real blessing is not temporary reprieve from mourning. Real blessing is the elimination of mourning altogether. That's what we have in Christ. That's where we're headed. And so, yes, we endure the ups and downs of living in a world where there is death. But guess what? Death has been defeated. Its days are numbered. And so the true king provides this for us. Amaziah is not worth following, certainly not worth worshiping. Jeroboam II, don't follow his example. But know this, that the true king, the true king is the one we need. He's the one that provides true blessing. And in his kingdom, there's no theft, there's no abuse, there's no injustice, there's no sorrow, there's no, there's no mourning, there's no pain. There's just peace and joy forever. Amaziah couldn't provide that. Jeroboam couldn't. But Jesus has. That's the king we need. That's the king we're called to follow. The question we have today is, will we? Will we follow him? Would you pray with me and we'll ask him to help us do just that. Lord Jesus, we pause this morning and as, we, as we've been reading about these kings in 2 Kings 14, Amaziah, Jeroboam, we, Lord, we, we confess that we know their struggles. That we struggle with pride. That we struggle with idolatry. Worshiping stuff or people or money, whatever. And Lord, we confess that your perfect law does its job. It exposes the fact that we are not righteous. And Lord, that we, we don't warrant your grace or mercy. And yet we have seen, as we continue to look forward through the Bible, that your provision for us, Lord, we see you as the perfect law keeper, the one who has kept the law and therefore freed us from the law. Lord, we see you as not proud and arrogant, but humble and glorious in your humility showing us what it looks like to lay down our lives for others. 
Lord, we see that you are the one who makes peace by your death and the one who provides true and lasting blessing through your sovereign grace. And Lord, we confess that maybe this morning we're distracted by other concerns. Maybe we're going through trials and they have us down. They have us uh, concerned, anxious, fearful, Lord, doubting, ashamed. But Lord, may we look to you as our true king and may we be encouraged. May our faith be strengthened. May we have greater resolve to move forward in faith. Lord, may we find confidence in the gospel. May we be ready and willing and quick to confess our sin. And Lord, give us a lifestyle of repentance where we say no to temptation and yes to walking by faith in you. And Lord, in all of this, we recognize that we could never earn or warrant your grace, but you have freely given us your grace. Lord, may that change us. We ask now in your name. Amen.